Hey guys, I'm Valerie. And I'm Jasmine, and this is your favorite ever podcast, Craft Drafts and Crime. <laughs> yes, we are everybody's Woo! favorite all of a sudden, so... <laughs> thank you guys for your support um and we also want to give a wonderful shout out to vanessa who suggested this cult for this episode so thank you vanessa for the suggestion and today we are talking about the reg niche movement and the sources are osho dynamic britannica biography.com neh.gov rolling stone wikipedia the u.s sun the Guardian, The Oregonian, Newsweek, The New Republic, The Cut, and The Baltimore Sun. I just want to say real quick before we start that I'm going to use two words interchangeably, Rajneeshis and Sanyasins, and they basically are both just different ways of saying the devotees of this cult. So when I use that word, that, that just that's what that means. So don't yell at me. <laughs> So, Rajneesh was born on December 11th of 1931 as Chandra Mohan Jain in Kushwara, India. He was also called by the name of Asharya Rajneesh. He lived with both of his parents and his with his grandparents on separate occasions. And as a kid, he went by Raja. He was very rebellious and he enjoyed taking risks. He had some neighborhood friends who would go out with him on different dangerous adventures. And if Raja told them that they were doing it, the other boys were doing it. Like, it was that simple to them. He was a leader from the very beginning. Though Raja personally could usually do the dangerous feats, failing to do them did not stop the other boys from returning for more the very next day. They always wanted to follow him and do what he was doing. So Raja tested the limits to see how far he could push them. And this pretty much is just indicative of how his entire life is going to be. So Rajneesh was intelligent and he did really well in school, but his rebellious nature followed him. And when he started college, he had conflicts with professors. So he dropped out for a period of time. He had always felt like he didn't belong. Then on March 21st of 1953, which would make him like 21 years old, he felt an energy inside of him. And he had a several long hour like spiritual experience while he was sitting underneath the tree. And after this, Rajneesh claimed to be enlightened and he was completely changed. So he returned to a new college and he graduated with a bachelor's degree in philosophy. After that, he attended Sagar University for his master's degree in philosophy, which he achieved in 1957. He was an assistant professor for a brief period before becoming a professor of philosophy at University of Jabalpur. He also began traveling through India in hopes of becoming a guru, which is like a spiritual leader for other people. And he had excellent charisma, which matched his intelligence. So, you know, he felt he stood a pretty good shot. But the thing that set him aside from others was very simple. He was incredibly controversial. So he thought that organized religion was a bad thing and that sex was a good thing, which, I mean, <laughs> I can't say that I strongly disagree with that. But many people were offended by his beliefs. But even more were people who wanted to hear what he had to say. 
People who felt oppressed by their religion or their attitude towards sex due to cultural religion loved listening to Rajneesh. So in 1970, Rajneesh wasn't satisfied with just teaching lectures anymore. Each time that he gave a lecture, he was surrounded by newcomers, which on the surface sounds really great, except for that he had to keep giving the same lecture over and over. So instead of being able to like deep dive into his beliefs, Rajneesh felt like he was only grazing the surface with new newcomers coming each time. So because of this, he thought it might be better to give more continuous lectures to people who had already heard his previous teachings. In June of 1970, Rajneesh headed to Bombay. So he had plenty of places to stay because of the people who respected and liked him. And people wanted to become enlightened also. And he convinced people that he could bring them closer to that. So at first, if you wanted to be a part of his teachings, you could actually find Rajneesh in his apartment and you were greeted with a secretary when you walked in. And if he was available, you were brought to his bedroom to speak with him. And at that point, he would frequently encourage people to return for either a specific lecture or a meditation session or like a camp that they would have. And he also created the concept of dynamic meditation, which is made up of five stages. And I'm actually going to talk you through this because it's probably the most interesting like kind of meditation I've ever heard of. Um, have you ever meditated, Jasmine? I have not. I don't think I have the self-control to be able to do it um but then again i've never tried it so okay i have um i've done it a couple times i've only successfully meditated once and this is going to sound really bougie so bear with me <laughs> I, was, I was in <laughs> bali with my friends <laughs> and we did some, <laughs> i know and we did yoga and different meditation classes and i remember we did one that was supposed to be really cool and it was like a tibetan bowl meditation and so I just thought it was really loud and really hot and I kept getting hit by like bit by bugs. But um, in another meditation section session, I keep saying section, I'm sorry, session. It's because I talk too fast. Um, I like actually meditated and it was weird because I didn't realize until after the fact and I had never experienced anything like that. And I was so negative about it going in. I was like, this isn't going to happen. This isn't, you know, whatever. I'm like, I'll just try to relax. It's fine. And I like came out of it, out of that state of mind. And I was like, oh my God, I think I just fell asleep. My friend was like, no, you were meditating. And I was like, oh my God, is that what that's like? <laughs> it was so cool. <laughs> So I just, you know, I really respect people who do meditation all the time. I think it's a really healthy, really cool thing to be able to do. But this is a completely different kind of experience than anything else I've ever heard. So it's five stages. The first stage is 10 minutes of chaotic breathing out of your nose. And I mean exactly like it sounds. Like you focus on exhaling through your nose, but you can't make like a rhythm or a pattern. You're supposed to just like... Just do it as you do without like trying to make any kind of sense out of it. So Rajneesh explains this as, quote, dreaminess becomes more possible. If there is more carbon dioxide around you, you will be dreamy. And that is why in the day you cannot be so dreamy as in the night. The chemical compounds change. At night, there's more carbon dioxide in the air and the oxygen is less. So if the reverse is possible, if the oxygen is in you and around you is more and the carbon dioxide is thrown out, you cannot be dreamy. That is why I insist on vigorous breathing. 
It is nothing but a chemical device to change the chemical atmosphere in you. More and more oxygen must be there. The more the oxygen, the less you fall victim to the dream, and your memories cannot work without the medium of dreaminess. So the second stage is 10 minutes of explosion. And by explosion, I mean you let your body physically express itself in any way that it wants to. So like you can scream, you can dance, jump, laugh, like whatever you start doing, you're just supposed to do. You're like, you're not supposed to think about it and you're not supposed to stop moving. It is completely optional to be vocal, but most people are. So Rajneesh says of this step, quote, madness is beautiful if you are conscious, you enjoy it. The more you throw it out, the less burdened you are, and you feel that your energy is purified. You feel that now you can fly in the sky. Now there are no boundaries to you. You have become weightless. Now the whole gravitation on the earth cannot pull you down to the earth. You have become greater. You can transcend this pull now. This pull works because you carry such a burden. So for the third stage, for 10 minutes, you are supposed to physically exhaust yourself. And you do this by lifting your arms above your head and jumping up and down and shouting, whoo, 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 as like a mantra. So if one chooses to be silent, they can yell it inside of their head instead. And then Rajneesh explains this stage with, quote, when you tire yourself out, two things happen together. As you tire yourself out, all of the practice tires out your body, mind, your sense organs. On the other, it goes on hammering your kundalini. So from one end, you get tired. And from another, your sleeping energy begins to wake up. These processes are simultaneous. On one side, you get fatigued. And on the other, your energy is awakened. At the same time, you are not in a position to use your energy any further. Your eyes are so tired that they cannot see. And your mind is so tired that it cannot think, even if it wants to. Your legs refuse to move. They are so utterly weary. In this situation, if you want to move, you will have to move without your feet. And if you want to see, you will have to see without your eyes because they are just exhausted. So when your organism is overworked, it refuses to do a thing. But at the same time, some energy has been awakened and it wants to do something urgently. Now, this energy will immediately knock at those of your doors that are not tired and are ever ready to take it and work with it. These openings were always ready, but were denied in all the opportunity to do a thing. You were so strong that you could use up all of your energy. Now you are tired and new and fresh energy is up for action. But your old organs, like ears and eyes, will refuse to take it. So when your ears and eyes refuse to see, what will the new energy do? In this situation, you will begin to see from some very different dimension, which will be part of your new being. Your psychic center of sight will begin to operate, and you will see things you have not seen before. You will see from a space you have not used in the past. The space has never been given the opportunity to function. Now there's an opportunity for it for the first time. So for the fourth stage, for 15 minutes, you are supposed to stop in whatever position you find yourself in. Like, so you don't have to sit in a certain position, just like whatever position that you like naturally fall into is what you're supposed to stay in. And you do not move at all. Like you're not supposed to 
like cough or anything. Like you're not supposed to move. So Rajneesh refers to the fourth stage as the door. And he says of this stage, quote, the ego is nothing but an accumulation of your memories of past actions. So the more a person has done, the more egocentric he is. Even if your doing has been in social service or religious work, whatsoever you have done becomes part of the ego. Ego is not an entity, but the memory of your doings. So in those moments when there is no doing, you are not. Then something happens. Even though you are not doing anything, you are totally conscious. Silent, but conscious. Exhausted, but conscious. Only consciousness is there. A consciousness of your deep let go. A consciousness that now everything has disappeared. When the fourth stage has ended, when it becomes a memory, then you can recollect it. But in the moment itself, there is nothing. There is only consciousness. Because only nothingness is there, you cannot be conscious of anything. Afterwards, you recognize that there has been a gap. Your mind functioned until a particular moment, and then there was a gap, and then it began again. You feel this gap afterwards. The gap, the interval becomes part of your memory. So that's kind of what I meant when I was saying the time that I meditated that like all of a sudden you're like, wait, was I asleep? That kind of is a good description of that. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like sleep paralysis where like you're like stuck there. Minus the terror. (laughs) Minus the terror. Absolutely. Minus the terror. Like you're not like seeing demons and shit, but it just like I don't know if I'd like that though. Like I I feel like I would love to try it, but at the same time I'm kind of nervous because I don't like not being able to have like control over my body at any given moment. So I think the reason that you don't like it is because you're comparing it to sleep paralysis. <laughs> it's I swear it's not like that. <laughs> No, it, I mean, I've only ever experienced that one time, and that was enough, and it wasn't even that bad compared to other people who have had <laughs> severe sleep paralysis. It's enough to scar you for life. That's all that matters. So there is a fifth stage, and the fifth stage is 15 minutes of celebration. And in that celebration period, you're supposed to, like, come out of your sleep and express yourself with music and dance. And so those are the five stages of the meditation, dynamic meditation. Which I think is just really interesting. It's very different from anything I've ever heard before. So in the early 1970s, Rajneesh was living in Pune, which is in India. And he opened up his six-acre ashram. He chose six disciples who chose to follow Rajneesh and be born again in whatever way he deemed necessary. So they got a new name. They wore sunrise colors like red and orange, which symbolized their path towards enlightenment. And they got an Amala necklace. He wanted his disciples to have all of the luxuries, including sex, that they want. Rajneesh also changed his first name to Bhagwan, which means God. So Rajneesh is also known for being a sex cult. Have you heard this before? I have not. I've never heard of this cult before. Oh, okay, cool. So people who have heard of this cult have probably heard it be referred to as a sex cult. And there's a number of reasons for this. So Rajneesh himself liked to play with women's genitals with his toes during naked therapy sessions. Which is just gross. Yeah, exactly. That sounds nasty. Like, 
you know how much your feet sweat and how stinky it is? And for you, no, that causes funguses. That's gross. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he also encouraged people to have multiple sexual partners. And unfortunately for single women, he expected them to be available to any men who were also unattached to a partner. So if a man was to approach a woman, she would either have to basically agree to sleep with him right away or put him on a so-called waiting list. So according to Eva Renzi, she had once refused to sleep with someone in the group. And so they in turn tore her clothes off and beat her up. What the fuck? Yes. So Rajneesh was also an advocate for sterilization and encouraged men and women to get fixed, so to speak. So either, you know, have your tubes tied or have a hysterectomy and for men to get a vasectomy. So though Rajneesh discouraged pregnancy and childbirthing and was for abortion, which is just, you know, if anybody listened to last week's episode, it's the polar opposite of last week's episode where they're having as many babies as possible. This He was totally not for children. But just to be clear, it's not because he was like a liberal feminist. He thought that children stood in the way of people going down their enlightenment path. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like you said, like they're complete opposites, like last week's episode and this one. It's like in last week's episode, like they just, they believe that women were put there to procreate, breed, make all these babies, and they wanted you. It's basically what they they wanted you for as a woman. And right. now here he is where he doesn't want you to procreate at all. He just wants you to be a sex object for men. Exactly. Exactly. The entire purpose of it is completely opposite in here, which is why it's so interesting just to hear too, you know, all these different kinds of cults because it's like their view on everything is so different. And here's the thing too, like people already have kids, right? So, like, people are going to come into this cult already having kids. So, former um, Sanderson Hera Bluestone said of it, quote, I would say there was neglect of the kids there, only by virtue of the fact that the children lived separately in a group kids' home, and there were weeks when some kids would not see their parents. I didn't see any physical abuse, though there was some verbal or mental abuse. So that's just an interesting thought, too, because, like, kids were, like, technically physically allowed there. You just were encouraged to procreate, and they were kind of neglected. And it's just... I like that. Yeah, I know. It's pretty pretty shitty. But Rajneesh overall was known for his, like, number one promise, which was, and I quote, I promise you that if you surrender to me, I will transform you. And these lectures made it, like, across the world. It brought, like, a ton of Westerners to follow him. And he got a new secretary whose name was Mi Anand Sheila, who's going to go by Sheila for the rest of this episode. And by this time, authorities were threatening the sect based on its activities because they just, they weren't okay with everything that was going on there. And it started causing a strain on the ashram in Pune. So Rajneesh technically had a set of Ten Commandments. They were informal, but he did have them, and I want to read them to you. Number one is never obey anyone's command unless it is coming from within you also. Number two, there is no God other than life itself. Number three, truth is within you, 
Do not search for it elsewhere. Number four, love is prayer. Number five, to become a nothingness is the door to truth. Nothingness itself is the means, the goal, and attainment. Number six, life is now and here. Number seven, live wakefully. Number eight, do not swim, float. Number nine, die each moment so that you can be new each moment. And number 10, do not search. That which is, is. Stop and see. So basically, (laughs) what I get out of this is live in the moment and be woke. (laughs) Yeah, it's like live in the moment, be woke, and also don't question anything. Yeah, just go with the flow, which is kind of beautiful in a way, honestly. Meh, I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) So on June 1st of 1981, Rajneesh went to the USA on a tourist visa for medical care for a prolapsed, prolapsed disc. He had been treated by numerous doctors. Sheila gave a public statement in which she said, quote, indicated that Rajneesh was in grave danger if he remained in India, but would receive appropriate medical treatment in America if he needed surgery. So, just several days later, on June the 13th, Sheila's husband bought a 64,000 acre property which is about 260 square kilometers in Oregon. Originally, it was named Rancho Rajneesh, and the following year, the sect changed the name to Rajneesh Piram. Over 2,000 people lived there at any given time during the next couple years, 54% of which were women, which I thought was kind of interesting that it was pretty split down the middle. And... It's kind of the thing about Rajneesh. Like, in addition to what people called, like, you know, a sex guru, he did actually have some feminist views. It wasn't all BS. Like, he believed that women were just as capable, if not more capable, than men. His philosophy for this was, quote, It is for the betterment of both man and woman that the woman should be given every freedom and equal opportunity for her individuality. Which, yes. Yes, I agree with that. So both men and women worked long hours, usually in careers similar to what they had before coming to the sect. So a large percentage of Rajneesh's followers had college degrees, and they followed a very new age approach with recycling, organic farming, and a combination of both Eastern and Western spiritualities. In more recent years, though, former Sanusins came forward to discuss that these approaches were actually more for show and that like organic farming, for example, wasn't actually practiced. So Rajneesh was infamous for owning almost a hundred Rolls Royces and he had a ton of flashy items and was like known for having like a lot of fancy watches. So most members considered Rajneesh Purama utopia, even though, you know, they really didn't have anything for themselves, but they saw this constant luxury and they were happy, at least for a little while. By 1982, Rajneesh had made Sheila his power of attorney. 
He also stated that he was going to have a period of silence in which he would only be communicating with Sheila and that she would speak on his behalf, which led people to question whether or not she was truly representing him. Throughout this entire time in Oregon, people were dissatisfied with Rajneesh Priyam being there, people who obviously were not a part of the cult itself. That being said, the sect violated land use laws, according to these people. So Rajneesh ended up in a giant lawsuit over the thing, but he won. And he had previously been adamant that a third world war would happen and destroy most of the world as it is. So these ideas became more widely known after this lawsuit and in his newsletters that he had in 1983. In 1984, Sheila announced that Rajneesh thought that two-thirds of the world would die from AIDS. Which, maybe. <laughs> yep. By October 30th of 1984, Rajneesh ended his silence. So there was an upcoming election in Wasco County in 1984. I apologize if I mispronounce it. Somebody from Oregon's going to yell at me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Rajneeshis wanted to have an upper hand in the election and get some of their members elected. So to Sheila, the easiest way to do this would be to incapacitate voters of the Dallas, Oregon, who would not be able to vote for them, like who weren't going to. So they were like, okay, if we incapacitate them, but they're not going to vote for us. Like, that's perfect, because then we'll have more people voting for us. So, salmonella bacteria was obtained through a medical supply company and then cultured at the sect in labs. So, at first, members tried to put salmonella on, like, produce and grocery stores and on various, like, high-touch spots, like doorknobs. But it wasn't doing anything. So... Sect members delivered salmonella and terica through water, salad bars, and salad dressing to two county commissioners into 10 restaurants. It was the first ever bioterrorist attack that took place in the USA, and it went on from August the 29th of 1984 to October the 10th of that year. 700, yeah, it's a very long time. 751 people contracted salmonella. So, can I just insert something really quick? Mm -hmm. Antoine actually had salmonella, um, like, a couple years ago. That had some tough shit to go through. It, it is. Was actually hospitalized. Yeah. Because it was so bad. And, like, I'm, I'm convinced that I had it as well, but I just, like, went through with I just didn't go to the hospital I just pushed through that shit but it is terrible it's like it's I don't I don't know how to describe it but it's like so he was to the point where like he was throwing up so much that he had started to bleed oh my god like yeah like his his, his esophagus was so raw um and then on top of that, he, like, you know, it's it's coming out. It's like, it's like explosive diarrhea constantly and constantly. constantly. I know that's TMI, but it's, it, it literally is. And then, so, like, sometimes, like, when you had to use the bathroom, you felt like you were going to throw up at the same time. 
So it's like, what do you focus on? Using the bathroom or throwing up? That sounds terrible. It is. It is. And, like, I don't know. It's crazy. And, yeah, it was. He was in the hospital for, like, a week. It was crazy. Yeah, salmonella is no joke. And so, of those 751 people, 45 of them were hospitalized. Fortunately, nobody died from this attack. But also, it like, the purpose of it totally didn't work. They didn't get elected. Like, people still went out and voted for the other candidates. So, they did it for, like, completely in vain. But so, Congressman James Weaver thought circumstantial evidence was present to indict Rajneeshis, but an investigation was obviously required. So, during this investigation, Rajneesh spoke at a press conference and announced that Sheila and 19 other leaders of the sect had just left for Europe. He invited investigators into the commune, stating that he was completely unaware of the attack and that it was happening and that it was completely Sheila's doing. He referred to the group that left as a gang of fascists and stated that they had committed several other heinous crimes. Very quickly, investigators were able to link the salmonella cultures found in the sex lab to an exact match of the strain used in the attacks. So they were very easily able to link that. During this time, investigators also became aware that Rajneeshis had plotted to kill United States Attorney for the District of Oregon, Charles Turney. He was a prosecutor and was in the hospital. So Rajneeshis set out to poison his IVs in the hospital. To their disappointment, when they got there, he actually wasn't hooked up to any IVs, so they couldn't poison it. Thank God. So Rajneesh also told investigators that Sheila and her crew had attempted to kill his doctor, Swami Devaraj, and his partner, Mayoga Vivek. So during the investigations, Rajneesh was found to have immigrated to the U.S. illegally. Imagine that. So he ended up pleading guilty to immigration fraud and was fined several hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he was forced to leave the U.S. without being able to come back for a minimum of five years. He spent several months trying to gain access to other countries and he continuously got denied. And it got to the point that he ended up back in India because nobody else would really take him. So he went back to Pune to the ashram. Meanwhile, Sheila's running free in Europe. So they searched her home back in Oregon, and they also found evidence of her wiretapping to spy on different people in the commune. They eventually caught her in West Germany in 1986, and they sent her back to the U.S. for sentencing. She pleaded guilty to attempted murder, assault, arson, electronic eavesdropping, immigration fraud, and conspiracy. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison, and she was fined $470,000. Yeah. This is in the 80s. Right. I want to also put that in perspective for everybody. Um, She ended up getting out of prison after four years and was paroled. So starting in 1987, Rajneesh's health began to decline. He, of course, blamed the sickness on his very brief period of time in prison in the U.S. before he was forced to leave. 
So in February of 1989, Rajneesh began going by the name Osho, which means like high priest or preceptor. And on January 19th of 1990, Rajneesh died at age 58. Followers of his maintained that he died from poisoning in U.S. prison and said, quote, living in the body had become a hell. Rajneesh actually died of heart failure. But, you know, whatever people need to tell themselves. Right. So some people are happy that he's gone because they said, you know, he used mind control and hypnosis and he converted people to following him and devote themselves to him. And they would take everything from them but live you know, really luxuriously while they lived very simple lives for no pay. On the flip side, many people were very sad that he died because they learned about the meaning of life from him. So Sheila still follows ways of the cult, but she does this from Switzerland where she lives today and she's in her 70s and she actually runs to nursing homes where she cares for patients. So, the cult kind of exists today. It Okay, so Osho Meditation Resort is in Pune in the exact location where the ashram had been when Rajneesh died. It is an international resort and it invites people to stay for extended periods of time, but also allows people to leave as soon as they wish. So, these resorts are actually in over 70 countries, but because of coronavirus, they're currently suspended, so they're not open. But from what I can tell, it doesn't happen anymore. But as of three years ago, Osha Resort was still requiring every single person who entered to have an HIV and AIDS test. Oh, wow. Yeah, sure, definitely. Yeah, sure. So from my reading, people are welcome to have sex at the resort, but it is in no way an expectation. So it's nothing at all like how the ashram was. And people are simply free to do whatever they please. So there's a ton of mixed reviews, both on the Osho Meditation website and on, like, TripAdvisor. It's on. So you can read a bunch of reviews. It's actually kind of interesting. So some people still consider themselves Sanyasins, and seminars with Rajneesh's teachings still occur, but at a significantly lower rate than the very active years in which he was alive. I also want to mention that Netflix does have a docuseries that is six episodes, which are like an hour each, called Wild Wild Country. I personally did not watch it. Every single personal account that I read of a former member of Rajneesh said two things. The first being they disapproved of the documentary, they didn't feel it gave proper insight, and secondly, that they did not consider Rajneesh to be a cult. Some even took offense to it. But I thought that the best take that I could find about this, because, you know, there's so much of an argument to, you know, how people differentiate between a religion and a cult and different things like this, right? So there was an article in the Baltimore Sun written by a philosophy professor named Sam Fleischhacker. And he said, quote, the real difference between a cult and a religion is about 100 years. Once a cult is able to establish itself for several generations, we call it a religion. Before that, we dismiss it as a dangerous threat to real religion. This may seem mocking, cynical dismissal of the difference, and hence of religion itself, but I don't mean it that way. For there are good reasons to respect a group that can maintain a vision of how to live across two or three generations, 
ones that do not apply to groups that come and go with a single generation. To start with the most obvious points, a group that survives over generations cannot afford that sort of self-destructive, oppressive, or antisocial behavior that appalls us in cults. It cannot engage in mass suicide, of course, nor is it likely to continue if it prescribes extremely unhealthy practices, and it is likely to fall apart or draw upon itself harsh attention by the political authorities around it if it oppresses its members or engages in attacks on outsiders. To become a religion, a group with a shared vision of what God wants or what makes human life worth living, is therefore likely to develop a morality much like that of society around it and indeed declare the morality central to what it has to teach. So this, of course, is is an opinion, but I think it's a completely acceptable one. It's respectable. And I think it was worth sharing, especially because we've delved into so many different kinds of cults this season. I just think that that was actually like a really fluid way of explaining kind of the difference between a cult and a religion. But, you know, if you have a different opinion, that's fine and well. Share it with us. We want to hear it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely did like it because I think it was it was different because of what you said. Also, it was different because it was like a, a sex cult. None of the ones that I feel like that we've done were like that. Like, right. In that way. So, yeah, definitely. This was this was pretty interesting. Yeah. It was, you know, it's a, it, it's definitely interesting for sure. And I understand that people are going to be watching that documentary and people probably already have if they're listening to this episode now. Um, I just simply, once I, st- I started doing research, I usually start researching before I watch something or read um, like a book or something like that, just to make sure it's something I'm going to follow through with. And when I started reading all these testimonies, I was like, eh, maybe I won't. I just didn't yeah. want to skew my opinion before coming into this episode. So, okay. yeah, but, you know, watch it if you want some more information, you know, see what it has to offer. I'm sure that there's a decent amount of good insight in there. And I've heard that it's enjoyable. So there's that. Everybody, that's your homework. Go watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but so that is our episode on Rajneesh. And I hope that you all enjoyed learning a little bit about that. And if you want to see pictures from the episode, you can find it on our Instagram at Crash Dress and Crime. If you would like to follow us on Facebook for updates, you can do that at Crash Dress and Crime. If you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at Crafts and Crime. If you would like to subscribe to our Patreon for bonus episodes, you can do that at Crash Dress and Crime. And if you want to share with us your opinion on the difference between religion and a cult or suggest an episode or anything like that, you can email us at uh, Crash Dress and Crime at gmail.com. And if you listen on Apple, please rate and review us. And most importantly, please keep listening. We appreciate it. Until yes, next time. Sure. Bye. Bye. <laughs>